just draw this little box and say, this, God, if you do all this, then I'll know you love me. Do you realize how finite that is, how human, how short-sighted that is? And yet we do that. And his love is so much bigger. And the more we invest, and the more we seek to understand, we realize there is a vast, infinite, infinite extension to who God is and how much he loves us. And that's where we want to go with this, with this series. As, as Ralph uh, started last week and, and we looked at the different names for Jesus and how that was an expression as we continue to look at, at God's love for, this, for us this week and then next week as we continue and see how we can love one another. We want to focus on that because of anything about the Christmas season. It's an understanding of God's love for us. Or at least our need to come closer to that understanding of his love for us. Well, I titled this today, uh, My Father's Love. And in doing that, I, I'm fully aware that that prompts different reactions in different people. Because when we talk about my father's love, some might say, I remember, that's a memory. I have a warm memory of that. I, know I have a father who perhaps was imperfect and tried to love me. Um, but I have good memories of that. There are others who hear, when they hear the term, my father's love, it really comes about in a negative way because they didn't know that. They never had the experience. They had a father who was distant, who was non-existent, um, who showed anything but love. And that's a painful chapter in their lives. In fact, sometimes they just push it out of their minds. Understand that. There's some here today Perhaps fathers who say, you know, I need to be able to better express my love, or I want to be a better father. And there's others who heard, hear that term, my father's love, and say, I have a father. I love him. He loves me. He's imperfect. He tries. He does his best. But whatever it is, whatever this, wherever you are on the spectrum, we need to come to an understanding today of what our Heavenly Father's love is for us. See, this, this humanness in us, it somewhat skews our perception of our Father's love for us. Understand that. Because we as humans are finite minds and we attempt to understand my Father's love and in doing that we have a grid that it comes through and that grid is our understanding of our own Father's love the only way that we can get an accurate and full description of our Father's love for us is through His Word and His Spirit working in us. And I tell you, once that begins, once that we begins and we start to understand what God's love is for us, that's when we begin to enter into the depths of a relationship with Him. We're going to be looking at uh, the book of Galatians today, um, as has already been read um, but as we talk about our Heavenly Father's crazy love, what it is, and this is also brought out in, in Francis Chan's book, it's, a, it's an attempt to describe the mind-boggling concept that the Supreme Being, the God of the universe, actually has the most purest and deepest love for you and me that goes far beyond our own simple understanding of a duty-based or sentiment-based commitment to someone other than ourselves. It just, it just, we, our minds can't grasp that. 
Well, if you would turn to Galatians, um, I'm going to be covering mainly chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, but as was read, we needed to back up a little bit. Uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians about relationships. And in that short passage, in just verses 1 through 7, if you have a Bible and let your eyes skim through those seven verses, you see a lot of relationship-type words in there. You see heir, child, slave, owner, guardian, manager, father, children, still with me, son, woman, adoption, Abba, father, a lot in there, just seven verses. It's evident that Paul considers relationship to be key to his message to the Galatians. Well, why was he writing this letter to the, the churches in Galatia? This is one of the, um, the churches in Galatia were some of the earliest churches that he planted on you know, his first missionary journey. And the book of Galatians, written to those churches, is one of the earliest books in the Bible in, in the, that Paul wrote um, to the churches. He had a very specific intent about this book. Because he is teaching the gospel as it is. He's teaching salvation by grace through faith. And you see that all throughout his other, his other epistles as well. But see, in Galatia, there were some individuals coming up who were saying, they were called Judaizers, because they felt that this new religion, or whatever it is, Christianity, they didn't call it Christianity at that point, but, but that didn't quite sound right, because they were Jewish people, see? And they had thousands of years of traditions and law behind them, and to all of a sudden say that did not matter, and it mattered, what mattered was Christ's death on the cross... They couldn't quite grasp that. And so they said, okay, this is, this is okay. We can, we can handle the, the grace by faith stuff. But I'll tell you what, um, what needs to be in place in addition to that, that there were Jewish practices. They said, yeah, you can do the grace by faith, but you better keep all of those other laws, those feasts, and those sacrifices as well. See, the true gospel, get this, the true gospel represented a monumental shift especially in the mind of the Hebrew or the Jew. For thousands of years, they had this, not just a tradition, this was a God-given law that they had been following. This was their, it wasn't just the religion they did once in a while, it, was, it, it permeated every aspect of their lives for thousands of years. And now Paul is saying something different? That's why he had to write these letters, because there were people there who were saying, no, no, there's no way. There's no way you can just take all that and say, that was, now is. They were saying, no, no, there must be something that we must keep, continue to keep the laws. So he had a hard time grasping that, and in doing so, we're teaching the people there, actually teaching the people there, yeah, you can do that, but you've got to also do all the laws and the feasts and, and all the other uh, Jewish rites as well. So Paul's writing against that. In fact, in Galatians, he uses some pretty strong language in saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying, look, no, no, no. He had spent time there planted that church, and now he was writing a letter saying, please stop that. Uh, you've got to understand that it's grace through faith. So Paul is attempting to emphasize the, the shift, and he uses an illustration in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, just to back up a bit, Okay, we need to take context into consideration. I'm going to go all the way back to um, chapter 3, verse 23, just to get the, the gist of it. Um, 
chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, meaning the new covenant, the new faith way of doing things, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, under the law. See, this is what, this is what was grabbing the Judaizers saying, what? How could that possibly be? For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wow, that was landmark. That was huge. That was part of that monumental shift. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. He took it all the way down and said, you also are Abraham's offspring. See, this is what the Jewish people, the Hebrews, prided themselves in. They were children of Abraham. And here Paul is saying, even the non-Jews can be children of Abraham because of Christ. And speaking of heirs, see, he brings it to heirs um, in verse 29. And then speaking of heirs, in chapter 4, verse 1, really the chapter division is is not a good place for it right there. Uh, Speaking of heirs, he wants to give an illustration, so he does it like this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. This first part, a common illustration. He wants to somehow bring this home to the people at that time in some terms that they would understand. So he uses an illustration, an heir. Listen to it, and and if you want to follow along as I just read those verses, I want to read it out of a different translation. Um, Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. See, in that culture at that time, the wealthy often had servants, household servants. And they would be almost like part of the family, but not quite. And so he's using this illustration. The child doesn't benefit from his father's wealth any more than the servant does until he comes of age. A more contemporary example would be um, a father's wealth is held in trust until the age specified. When you draw up a will, you specify the ages at which your children will will receive your wealth, if you have any. And uh, up until that point, even though your children, they don't have it. So he's using that as, simply using that as an illustration. The funds, the real estate holdings, they don't fully belong to the children until that time. So for the readers of this letter, they had been, past tense, under the control of the manager or guardian, which Paul identifies in the next verses, the Mosaic Law. It was in place for them temporarily. They were essentially slaves to the moral, ethical, and legal system. So verses 1 and 2 is simply... An illustration. He wants to illustrate using an heir and a servant and a child. 
Well, the second one, and if, you're, if you want to create an outline, it's, it's uh, first is the um, illustration. Second, our past condition in verse 3. Our past condition. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, the elementary principles is a term that's used, that Paul uses almost exclusively, and it, it means that the prior way of life, especially as it has to do with the Jewish practices, but it also crosses over into non-Jews and their worship of the philosophies of the world, and also it, it somewhat infers uh, that there were demonic influences that they worshipped as well, the non-Jews. So he's packaging all them all together and calling them the elementary principles. It's similar to, not the same as, but similar to our concept of being slaves to sin. See, the Galatian Christians at one time were legalistic in their pursuit of religion. Whether it was Judaism, pantheism, philosophies, or even the worship of the spirit world. Uh, they were bound by restrictive regulations. Bound by restrictive regulations in a never-ending effort to try to please their deity. And that's what the elementary principles were. Now see, in verse 3, Paul paints a very bleak picture. He just kind of lays it out there. And then verse 4 says, but. He does that often. I don't know if, you've, if you were able to trace this. This would be an interesting study. Trace this throughout his letters where he does this, where he paints this awful picture. I, I jotted down a few of them. He, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 he says, where he says, We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy. And then again, he does this in um, verses 12 and 13 of Ephesians 2. We, were, we had no hope and we were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. And then one more in Titus chapter 3. We were once foolish, but when the goodness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Paul does this to, to just to contrast, just to say, look, this is how it was but now, this is how it is. So that's what he does in verse 3. He paints a very dreary picture of our current condition and then goes into verse 4 and says, But now, the incarnation. Verse 4, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Let's go to verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verses 4 and 5 is the incarnation. We had uh, verses 1 and 2, the common illustration. Verse 3, our past condition. Verses 4 and 5, the incarnation. Jesus, born at the right time, fully human, under the law. His purpose was to redeem, and the result was adoption. These were all new concepts, especially for Jewish people. This was very, very hard for them to grasp and understand. It was all brand new. They had not heard this before. And when the fullness of the time had come, it was at just the right time in history. When a baby is born, that is its appointed time. When he's ready or she's ready, they come. In fact, a uh, piece of free advice. Don't ever, don't ever say to a, to a mom who's, who's expecting... Uh, nine months expecting say, oh, if you just wait one more week, they'll be born on my birthday. Don't ever say that. Okay? Trust me. Just trust me on that. Don't ever say that. Uh, at the appointed time, when the fullness of the time had come, 
God sent forth his son. This strongly references God's sovereignty. Because it wasn't necessary. If it worked to us, we'd probably maybe pick a different point in history and say, God, if you did it here or if you did it there, this is when it would be good. No, no, no. This was God's choice at the fullness of time. Now, some will logically say, well, it was a good point in time because the, the way the geopolitical climate was at that time, it was the Roman rule, with the Greek culture, it, it, the gospel was spread. Yes, that makes logical sense. But either way, this was God's sovereignty, his appointed time. When he chose, that was the moment. He was born of a woman. God sent his son. It was his action. Born of a woman. He was human. And again, this was a stretch for both Jews and non-Jews because in their minds, deities were non-human. Had no humanness about them. And for, for Paul to be writing in here and saying, he was born of a woman, that made him human. How can a God that I worship be human? So it was a stretch for them to try to understand and that was part of the reason for the Judaizers because they, didn't, they just didn't understand that, didn't expect that. And Paul's stating very clearly, this Jesus was born of a woman. He was fully human. And to do what? To redeem those under the law. See, at that time you could purchase your slave or your household servant and Paul in no way was condoning that or slavery, but he was just stating a fact. He was stating the word, in fact, redeem was to not only go to the market and buy the person, but also buy the person and then turn around and set that person free right away. Almost unheard of. But that's the word that he uses here. And picture that. You're a slave and and somebody comes and buys you and you think, okay, a life of servitude, washing dishes, or whatever it was that they want you to do. And they turn around and say, oh, and by the way, you're free to go. Whoa! So when the, the readers, the listeners of this, heard this word, immediately they know what Paul was talking about. The person who goes to the market, buys somebody, and right away turns around and sets them free. The picture is a, a, the action of an owner toward an, toward an under-resourced and undeserving servant. To do what? To redeem. Resulting in what? Our adoption as sons. Fully completely and legally recognized as sons and daughters. See, with sons comes the rights of inheritance. It's the difference between servants and sons. Before, we had no part of the inheritance, which is summed up, essentially, the eternal life with God. But now that we have been adopted, it is forever ours. And just as with human adoption, get this, this is an important thing. It's important to remember that it is the Heavenly Father who accomplishes this. An adoptee doesn't recruit his parents, select them, and sign the papers, does he? No, it's the parents that take the initiative to do that. Same thing with God. Too often we think we had something to do with our adoption as sons or daughters. We didn't. It was God's action that did it. He was the one who adopted us. And why? (laughs) It's love. It's crazy. But it's love. We have verses 1 and 2, the common illustration. Uh, Verse 3 was our past condition. Verses 4 and 5 was the incarnation. And verse 6 is a close affiliation. 
Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. But notice he says, because you are sons, not like. It's not as if you were sons. No, 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 no. You are sons. That is full sonship. And notice that God sent his Spirit. If we were studying the Trinity, this would be one of the passages that we would look at um, in support of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned in this one short passage. The Spirit calls out or enables us to call out Abba, Father. Very similar verse Paul writes to the Romans back in uh, Romans 8.26. He writes this, The Spirit himself, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever prayed like that? I have. Pray like that sometimes. When you, when it's just, sometimes you like to just you know, go through your list and define for God precisely what you want him to do. You've got everything down, good to go. No, no, no. Sometimes there's things that God brings into our lives. There is absolutely no way you can figure out, how do I pray for this? I do not know. Did you know that when you come to that point, the Spirit himself is interceding for you? with words beyond what we can express. Abba is a term of closeness or familiarity. It's not something. This is, and here, here again, Paul is bringing out the contrast between, between son and servant. It's not something a servant would call his master, Abba. It's a very close father thing. It's not where you go to your, pos, your, your boss and call and say, Hey, old boy, what's up? Or at least you shouldn't say that. Um, but it's something that is very close. Father, Abba. And it was, again, here we go, it was, it was a new concept for the Hebrew or Jew because if you look in the Old Testament, you don't see God referred to as Father. You see Father Abraham. You see our Father Moses, our Father David. And so when it came down to when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, remember back in Matthew chapter 9, and, and, he, and we go through the Lord's Prayer and he says, Our Father who is in heaven, I'm sure amongst, among, amongst all the good Jewish people there, when he said, our father, they must have thought, he just called God our father. Oh my goodness, that was a new concept. And further, in, in the book of Mark, uh, Mark records Jesus praying in the garden the night before he was crucified, and Jesus used the word Abba, father. It's the Aramaic term for father. Paul uses it in Romans as well. It's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Paul uses it in um, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the adoption of the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, this term was an indication to the Galatian Christians that it's family a new type of relationship. It's not distance or aloof. It's a brand new concept, especially for the Jewish audience. See, this is a reality. This type of father, this type of father's love, is a reality, quite frankly, that all of us want, all of us need. None of us have ever really known, no matter how good our father may have been, 
And the reality of that Father's love also is something that every one of us can have. Available. It's available. But one thing about relationships. <clears throat> no, a few things about relationships. One, they're scary. They, they involve risk. And here's an interesting concept. Do you ever notice in, how in relationships we have boundaries? And boundaries are good. But I began to question this, and, I, and um, I, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. I have no idea. I did clear this with Ralph, so it's okay. Um, here's a concept. Do we construct boundaries in our relationship with God? Should we? Could we be daring enough to allow God to love us fully and then we love him back? What would that be like without boundaries? Well, I can tell you what it wouldn't be like. First, it would not be a rule-driven, legalistic religion. See, legalism is a dangerous element. It can creep into our lives and into our churches. You just follow these rules. We'll create these rules. You follow them, and you'll be a good Christian and be accepted here. That's legalism. That's dangerous. Warren Wiersbe writes this about legalism. One of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality... It leads the believer back into a second childhood of Christian experience. Huh. Very true. The other thing I know that it would not be like uh, being loved, being loved by God and loving him back would not mean that I simply adopt a politically correct and culturally acceptable way of life that too much of our Christianity has become. Now, Ralph was talking about this last week. We fit Christianity into our lives wherever it's convenient, don't we? Or we add Christian to our profile on our social networking site. That doesn't quite cut it. Both legalism and cultural Christianity, both of them say you need more, whether it's rules or the most comfortable Christian life possible. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, says this. We are programmed to focus on what we don't have. Bombarded multiple times throughout the day with what we need to buy that will make us happier or sexier or more at peace. This dissatisfaction transfers over to our thinking about God. We forget that we already have everything we need in Him. We put so much around us, whether it be these safe little boundaries of rules or, or, or make my life comfortable. If I'm going to be a Christian God, then you've got to make my life comfortable, okay? And we put that in front. That's not what he... He doesn't want to give us that. He wants to give us himself. There's so much of God that we have yet to learn. His is a pure and complete love. It's not meant to manipulate us or guilt us, or somehow get something in return. His love is 
and was held out with an open hand. And he took great risk. See, relationships are risky. He took great risk because he knew that millions of people would ultimately reject that love. And yet he did it anyway. We have the uh, verses 1 through 2. We had the common illustration. Uh, Verse 3 was our past condition. Verses 4 and 5 was the incarnation. And verse 6 was our close affiliation. Verse 7 is our new position. Our new position. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And again, look, there's a word missing in there. It doesn't say it's like you are an heir. It says you are an heir through God. It's no longer based on ritual or religion, but on relationship. See, he wants us to want him. He doesn't want a bunch of performance artists who just go through the motions out of duty and say, See, God, I loved you. No, 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 no. He wants us to truly, deep within us, to want and love Him. And our new position is based on God's crazy love for us. It's no longer a list of rules. Uh, The unfortunate thing is, I think this is just human nature, we like rules. It's much easier that way. Uh, We like a list to follow. Because, see, get this, if you have a list of rules... You don't necessarily have to engage your mind, your emotions, and your will in following God. You just follow this prescription. Follow the recipe. Follow the instructions. You really don't have to enter into it. That's, a, that's safe for us. We like that. It's much riskier for us to enter into a real relationship with God where we truly want Him. We want to just do the bare minimum. It's like, it's, we're like students. I, I work with students. Get by with the bare minimum. You know, if, if you're not, a student, if they have an exam, they're not going to say, oh, this is great, can I take another one? No, they're just going to do the very bare minimum. And if the, if the teacher asks for a five-page paper, they are going to stretch those margins and stretch the font and do everything else, make sure. They're not going to do five and a half pages of slides just because love doing papers. I'm going to do more. No, they get by with the bare minimum. Unfortunately, human nature too often is like that. But God isn't looking for rule followers. He's looking for a relationship with you. And understanding and seeking the depth of my Father's love, that's the basis, basis of good Christian living. And, and it is. It, it's not as easy. Granted. But that's what he's looking for. He's looking for the relationship. He wants realness on our part. See, the incarnation is God's love in action. And one thing we need to keep in mind about the incarnation is this. The incarnation is not just the birth of Jesus. Too often we think about that. We think um, this, this was just 
Jesus' birth. That's the incarnation. Well, it isn't. The incarnation is much more of that. And if you can remember all these terms, try, try to track with me here. The incarnation is conception, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. Did you get all those? Because when we think our incarnation, it's just the incarnation. That's Christmas. No. It's much more than that. It's conception. It's the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Especially around Christmas time, we just kind of get caught up in just that, the incarnation. And it is. It is just about Christmas. And you know it as, as well as I do. Too much of what we do at Christmas well, not too much. So much of what we do doesn't even have to do with the Incarnation. Good traditions, happy for them, but it's not the real meaning of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas is the Incarnation. We had this um, illustrated to us a while back. A couple of years ago, we had a young lady who, who was an exchange student from China staying with us. And uh, she arrived in our home. She was a high school student, arrived in our home in, in September and so, and, and she was, her family was nominally Buddhist, knew very little of, of Christianity. Um, and she was going to, to high school here. She had many questions about Christianity because she had heard of it, but really knew very little about it. So we would answer her questions, we'd pray for her faithfully and answer her questions. And then came Christmas time. Oh, and this is a Christian holiday. Yes, this is a Christian holiday. Oh, okay. Um, now, what's the significance of the tree? Uh, that's, that's just kind of a tradition. We just have the tree. Oh, okay. She's, I can see the wheels turning. What's the, why the candles and the lights? Or well, it's just tradition, too. Um, oh, Santa Claus. <laughs> now, that's part of the tradition. And, and gifts and buying things. That's part of the tradition too. When you think about it, remove all those things, still comes down to the incarnation of Christ. When I was looking at our decorations in our own home, you could probably take everything away except for one little part of, of where we have uh, the nativity scene set up. That's the meaning. That's what Christmas is about. And just so you know the end of the story, this young lady continued to ask the questions um, and it was, it was so interesting because in her mind, this was an intellectual thing where you just, she says, oh, I, I want to be a Christian. She saw, you know, our, our lives, our home, and she decided, yeah, I want it. But she had no clue. And I would explain to her, you know, that, the, that Jesus came as a gift. It was salvation. It was, I, I went through everything I could possibly think of um, just to help her understand what real Christianity was. And this is months um, and it was, it was one of those things we prayed and prayed and prayed and, and uh, God said, yeah, in, in my time, it's okay. And uh, we tried to explain to her and she'd say, oh, okay, I get it. Um, she left after the end of the school year, um, came back and actually w- went to her senior year in, uh, at uh, Wheaton Academy and uh, lived with a Christian family out there. In God's appointed time, we got a, th- a call at that Thanksgiving from her. And she says, and I could tell right away, I want you to know something. She was calling for one purpose. I became a Christian. That was amazing. Because all those, um, what, September through May, we just patiently said, well, okay, here's what Scripture says, here's what the Bible says. And she was not at all antagonistic toward it. She just didn't understand. But in God's timing, 
she came to a point, and when she related how she came to know Christ, it was, there was no question in my mind um, that she indeed didn't know Christ. And that was that was a wonderful thing for us. But I, but like I said, around around Christmas time, <laughs> it was especially challenging when we think of all the stuff, all the things that we bring around Christmas that don't have to do with the, the incarnation uh, incarnation of Christ. See, the incarnation is God's love in action. He didn't just sit up there and say, "Love you." Hope things turn out okay for you down there. He didn't do that. He did something. If you say you love somebody, you do something. He, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. See, we all have this inborn desire to be loved like this, to be special, to have someone think of us. Kind of like at Christmas time where, where somebody goes out and, and thinks of you and buys you a present and says, and wraps it up and says, here, I was thinking of you, I want you to have this. As opposed to, uh, yeah, here's 20 bucks, go buy yourself something. Really? A lot of big difference between that. Um, years ago when we were serving uh, with Inner City Impact, we had an event around Christmas time where this um, uh, church had asked for names of the, of the young people in our club program, names and ages and gender of the, of the kids in our club program, and they went out and bought gifts for these kids. It was amazing. It was really neat. And, and then they delivered them, and they didn't necessarily want to be there and watch the kids. They just said, they just said here, take them, and uh, let the kids unwrap them. So we had this program, and the kids came, and, I mean, paper flying everywhere, you know, kids screaming. It was great. We had a fun time watching them. On the way home, I, I helped with the van route and took some of the kids home. And um, this young fifth grader was, was sitting in the van next to me, and he had his present there. And uh, it was still unwrapped. Uh, it was still wrapped up, I'm sorry. It was still wrapped up. And I said, are you going to open that? He said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to keep it. I said, you can. I mean, everybody else did. Go ahead. He said, no. He says, you know what? He said, I want to make sure that on Christmas morning I have at least one present under the tree for me that's wrapped up. See, this gift meant something to him. He didn't order it. He didn't ask for it. It was most likely given by a stranger. But it represented someone who cared. He wanted the suspense of having a surprise under the tree in the morning, even if he had to place it there himself. We all want to know and feel that kind of love. And we can, from our Heavenly Father. You know, in response, my Christian life is lived not as a burden full of required, required rituals, nor as simply a cultural add-on with the accompanying traditions, but my Christian life is lived as a response to the deep love of my Heavenly Father as revealed through the incarnation of Jesus. Our band is going to come at this point and lead us in a song at the end. And the name of the song that we're going to be singing is Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. It's a prayer. And I invite you to truly, truly pray this. Because you know what opening the eyes of my heart, I know that's figurative speech, but you know what that means? It means, God, please address for me 
My mind, emotions, and will. Don't just let me let my lips move and say this is a nice thing, but asking God to open the eyes of my heart, it makes us vulnerable. It allows us to know Him and our deep Father's love for us. And that's what we need. The fullness of time was come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. And that's the Jesus that we sing about. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, this is a time indeed of the year when we're thankful and we're